0: Hello, I'm Fran Kelly and on ABC Radio National it's my great pleasure to bring you the sixth and final lecture of our 2009 Boyer Lecture Series, A Very Australian Conversation with General Peter Cosgrove. The son of a soldier, Peter Cosgrove, graduated from the Royal Military College Duntroon in 1968. He was sent to Malaysia as a lieutenant in the 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. During his next posting in Vietnam, he commanded an infantry platoon and was awarded the Military Cross for his performance and leadership during an assault on enemy positions. He became a national figure as commander of the Interfet Force in East Timor. He went on to become Chief of Army and then Chief of the Defence Force. General Cosgrove retired from the Army in July 2005. The following year, after Cyclone Larry devastated Far North Queensland, he was appointed Chairman of Operation Recovery Task Force, and he led the successful recovery until completion in early 2007. And this year, he is our 50th Boyer Lecturer. Over the past five weeks Peter Cosgrove has spoken about national security, regional relationships, politics and leadership and our social evolution. This week it's Australia's future paying it forward. Every decision we make on the big issues like climate change and national security will have a profound effect on our children's and their children's lives. So what can we do now to ensure we give them the best possible Australia? As he reminds us today, we not only have an abundance of brilliant people with great energy and inventiveness in this country, we are comparatively rich, and thus we can do what others might only dream. With the sixth in his A Very Australian Conversation Boyer Lecture Series for 2009, here's General Peter Cosgrove and Australia's Future, paying it forward.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome and I hope for many of you it is welcome back to this final lecture of the ABC's 2009 Boyer Lecture Series. When I was asked to be the Boyer Lecturer for this year, my instinct was to stay out of my pulpit and to engage you in the sort of conversation you might have over the dinner table or at the railway station with the bloke next door. A very Australian conversation. You might reflect that it has been a one-way conversation – because I can't hear you yelling out rubbish from your living rooms. More seriously, I have had vast enjoyment writing and delivering the lectures. The ABC has given me the priceless opportunity, through their invitation, to think long and hard about the subjects I've addressed over the last five weeks. For me, it became a journey of what I knew, what I thought I knew, and what I subsequently found out. There were pauses on the journey to ponder my views on a number of topics. Views I have been carrying around in some ways for many years, like old and battered suitcases, which have seen better days. So I have shown you my luggage. Some of it quite new, but also some of it was first taken up in boyhood. I hope you sympathise when I tell you that some of the old luggage was hard to let go. But ladies and gentlemen, time to move on, the future awaits. I thought today I might direct my comments towards this country's future, perhaps to some degree as we expect it to be, but equally and maybe more so as we hope it will be. I don't think any of you will argue with the proposition that for our generation there is no higher duty than to protect and nurture our families our community, our nation, now and into the future. It's the latter obligation that I focus on today, how we should act now, how we should decide now for the future. Not just over the next few years as we move off to the rocking chair and our children grab the levers of power, but for that innocent, silent but future generation The Australian Infants of Today and the Unborn of Tomorrow. For this reason, I've called this final lecture, Australia's Future, Paying It Forward. Wikipedia tells me that the expression, pay it forward, is used to describe the concept of asking that a good turn be repaid by having it done to others instead. How apt. The things we might do. And the decisions we might take are vital to be commenced now, but they are not for the immediate upliftment of ourselves or even our kids, but for their kids. Our children, amongst the audience today, many of them will already be adults, will actually themselves carry as much of the burdens as the benefits of whatever we might put in place. So what's my agenda for the future? Theoretically endless, but let's reduce it to a few imperatives climate change and its effects, social cohesion and immigration, and our place in the world, our security and our vital relationships. If there is a truly modern challenge, it is the spectre of climate change of such a profound nature as to threaten livelihood and even lives. Before a growing weight of scientific opinion drew the issue to worldwide attention, our energy concerns focused on the rapid rate at which we were drawing down the global stock of petrocarbon energy resources. Sustainable and renewable energy options became priority subjects for research and development. With the advent of climate change predictions and the early evidence of global warming, this research and development gained enormous extra impetus. The sort of climate change evidence and predictions shown to us were dire. Rising temperatures, melting ice caps, substantial rises in sea levels, disappearing islands and coastal communities, species destroyed. Agriculture stifled for lack of irrigation. Untold numbers of people without the food or water to survive. Say all that to me, and I say back to you, you have my full attention. And can you prove all that? To a large degree at the moment, the climate change debate is a battle for the minds of the vast unscientific multitudes who must believe, in order to act, or to permit governments to act. To me, the science on either side of the debate resembles the sort of military intelligence I have been considering over the long decades of my military service. Fact-based, but leading from there with a series of assumptions to a future scenario upon which, in all prudence, we should base actions now and in the future the climate change debate is probably more rigorously based than the usual military intelligence estimate because the Ford projections are based on some widely agreed formulae, whereas military intelligence estimates have to try to get into the mind of the potential adversary. Always very tough. Think about Saddam Hussein and WMD. But we are left with a preponderance of scientific opinion pointing to dire outcomes, and presently a minority who might be called climate change sceptics. So you and I have to balance what we have been told and decide if and how we will pay it forward. I come at this from the viewpoint that while I really don't know if all that I have been told is true, and if we are at risk of quite catastrophic climate change outcomes, say during the life of grandkids who might come along for my wife and I, then I am very uneasy about dicing with their future. I am very conscious of the huge change in direction and the expense and the turmoil and the impact on jobs entailed in a radical move to non-carbon energy for Australia. But if we don't do it, a country with our values, a country presently in the top 20 wealthiest countries in the world, a country depended on by millions of people who are our powerless friends and neighbours, how can we expect other nations to act and thus offset our lack of action? So let's not muck about any more. Let's start now to solve the problems that we own. At times like this, when you are invited to act strategically to look forward, say, 50 years, you see the downside of the relatively rapid electoral cycle of governments. The government of the day and the opposition are extraordinarily sensitive to the forthcoming federal election, and the prism of the election and the need to retain or gain government starts to flavour agendas and actions the will gets eroded and the intent gets blurred. I wonder if we need, through bipartisan support, a Commonwealth Climate Change Commission with a charter and statutory powers to monitor and enforce a long-duration climate change mitigation strategy. We can't have governments and oppositions daily scrapping over the concerted and coordinated action we need to take across the entire national community if, on a balance of probabilities, we need to start our action now to avoid the climate change noose sometime later in the century. There are so many cleaner, more sustainable and renewable energy resources becoming increasingly available – that it might seem that simply making them more efficient, less expensive and more available will go a long way to solving our exacerbation of the climate change phenomenon. Sadly, there is still a great mismatch between the reasonable potential of these energy options and the reality of our energy demands. If we are to react quickly enough to avoid arriving at a predicted level of exposure to global warming, then our manufacture of energy in a clean way needs to rise exponentially. We should encourage and help finance any and all moderately promising alternative energy production means. Of course, it is all horrifically expensive and entails huge infrastructure work and considerable economic restructuring. We could have large windmills dotting the countryside, more prolific than Patterson's Curse, and we would still be shy of the energy needs for a modern, developed country. We could have solar panels covering untold hectares of land reasonably close to centres of consumption, and we would still be well short of the present needs and usage of electrical power in Australia. But we have an alternative. We own a third of the world's uranium, which we are exporting far and wide. In that we don't want people using our uranium for nuclear weapons, I presume that after a bunch of X-ray machines and the like, we are anticipating that our customers will use our uranium for nuclear power stations. It seems to me, passing strange, that we so vociferously won't agree to have our own clean and enduring energy based on nuclear power generation. I anticipate the outcry that nuclear materials are horribly unclean. Of course they are, if their care in operation and custody overall is deficient. But if you look after that side of it, then in a climate change sense, there is hardly a cleaner Energy resource. We should note that if there wasn't a climate change issue, then we could burn our own coal till the cows come home, and we wouldn't need to consider the large step to nuclear energy. I think for many decades to come, there will still be markets for our coal all over the world to countries which have no choice but to rely on carbon-based energy. They will not be able to afford nor manage, a nuclear energy infrastructure. But if we continue to burn our coal prolifically for energy, then it seems to me we haven't taken climate change seriously. We are a rich and technologically advanced nation sitting in a geologically stable continent, so surely we can expect to build and operate safe nuclear power stations. While in the context of the climate change debate, I am most definitely a layperson, in practical terms, only nuclear power offers a realistic and relatively short-term alternative to carbon-based energy in the quantities and areas where Australians need it. The greatest favour we can do for our less wealthy neighbours is to get our own energy structure right. Windmills in Tuvalu, Won't do it. I dealt with the climate change question first because I feel that in Australia we don't yet sufficiently have a consensus to give us comfort that we are doing as well for our future generations as we should. I now want to move on to the matter of our social development, where we are heading as a people, and where we hope to be. Let's, for a moment or two, try to establish a baseline. On the matter of an Australian identity, just as people have done in the past, we could go round and round on this. We might approach the question more squarely to see whether we might catch at something immutable in it. Let's start. We worry greatly about immigration issues because we know intuitively that we need and want successful immigration well into the future, well into the lifetime of future generations to enrich our society in spiritual, cultural and material ways. We worry because it can put at risk one of the greatest treasures of our identity, our social cohesion, the unifying Australian characteristic. This is at the very core of our identity and it is unthinkable for us to see it degrade. Next, we are troubled by the plight of Indigenous Australians. We know that subtly, and sometimes through unintended outcomes, they have not had a fair go in the past. We understand that if their culture and their sense of self-worth continues to atrophy into the future, that will be a very sad outcome for a great nation to contemplate. Our identity very much rests on this keen sense of equity, Things cannot be right in the Australia of our minds if there is a remedial inequity in our society. Lastly, on this matter of identity, I go to the organising principle of the Australian nation, our democracy. Australians are at once politically lazy and acutely politically sensitive. The paradox is in these seminal differences we are sometimes blithely disengaged from all the noise and heat of the day-to-day political dialogue and combat. We leave that to the political class, and if they get too noisy and are not doing their jobs properly, we tip them out. On the other hand, if somebody comes up with a notion that puts the fundamentals of our democracy in play, then immediately Australians of most ages And all parts of the national community start taking a keen interest. It is this profound belief and trust in the safety and effectiveness of our democratic system which I think is another cornerstone of our identity. It is entirely possible in the future that we will be a republic with an Australian president as head of state. It is entirely possible that in the future we will have a National Bill of Rights, as do some other countries. It is entirely possible that there will be an evolution in the relationship between the tiers of Australian governments to reflect demographic and economic trends. Entirely possible for all these developments, but not as a set of fashion statements to meet some purest image of a perfect polity the Australian people will continue to apply the most rigorous judgement on whether any evolution in our democratic system puts at risk its robustness, serviceability and effectiveness. In the future, it may be that Australians of that time look back at us and wonder why we were such stick-in-the-muds about some of these issues. If that is the case and I could come back in ghostly form, I might whisper to them that the greatest legacy we felt we could pass them was the unbreakable strength of the instruments of our democracy. In this singular regard, paying it forward doesn't automatically require change, even if change with a guarantee is from time to time agreeable. Some of you may be mildly intrigued that within this commentary on Australian identity, I haven't delved into the emotional side. That has been quite deliberate because, personally, I am inclined to jump into that space pretty quickly whenever I think about Australia. From my long years in Kharki, I know how emotional, verging on spiritual, men and women in uniform get when in some far-off place doing tough things they are brought to contemplate their Australianness; it is palpable, and I think without exception, foreign observers of our people going about their duties would always refer to this incredible consciousness of who we are and where we're from. But it is an outcome, not an ingredient of our identity, and it seems to be reflected in the wider Australian community. This, I point out, is a community hugely evolved from the Australia will be there community of 1914. Multicultural hardly describes it. Certainly, we see a huge diversity of views and approaches to the Australian condition from relatively newly arrived people from all over the globe. Yet looking forward with great hope, We would all be happy to know our people like the place. I like to think it is true that the overwhelming majority of Australians love Australia. Remember, it was reported in the Australian newspaper in October this year that a poll established in The Economist found that out of the 33 countries polled, Australians had the greatest trust, admiration, respect and pride in their country. Of course, people will rightly point out that typical of contemporary surveys, we must be cautious because of the size of the samples. Nonetheless, I was thrilled because it shows that, what's and all, problems and unmet needs notwithstanding, our society remains confident and cohesive and ready to pay it forward because it feels it is worth it. Time to turn now to our final topic within the notion of paying it forward, that of our future security and international relationships. Let's start with our huge neighbour, Indonesia. In 50 or 60 years' time, it's very likely that Indonesia will have grown economically and to some degree be more highly developed. Its inherent challenges as an archipelagic nation will have restrained that development from being dramatic. Nonetheless, its very size, diversity and geographic position will ensure it retains its strategic importance to Australia. Even today, we have some lower-level arrangements with Indonesia in the security and law enforcement arena. I think it is in our high mutual interest to continue to foster and develop our partnership arrangements in this regard. Our sea lanes are theirs too. Criminal acts at sea from environmental damage through accident or intent to piracy and smuggling or drug running, potentially have significant and early flow-on to each other. I think it is entirely feasible to contemplate a strong mutual law enforcement arrangement which will enable burden sharing and interoperability between our two navies and relevant other at-sea agencies. In the other arenas of national security, we should be looking for the same transparencies, measured interoperabilities and friendly relations as we have now. These other areas are not of the nature on either side where we can expect to force the pace, but if it always remains our intent to do better, if Australia, for its part, never just lets relationships lapse in these other areas, then we will have done well by our successes. Moving on to the Pacific Islands at large, what can we do now which is significant and important and enduring with outcomes still beneficial in many years to come? Setting aside climate change mitigation initiatives and those conventional aid programs which require patience and longevity to bear fruit, then we have to look more holistically at the region and our relationship with it. In an economic sense, at present, we are the major supermarket and also in some areas the wholesale distribution warehouse. The people of the Pacific Islands to a large degree must shop with us either by visiting the regional supermarket or by accepting material from us as a distribution warehouse through our travelling salesmen. Theirs is very much a supplicant or take-it-or-leave-it relationship. I think we should contemplate some kind of closer and interdependent economic relationship with the countries of the Pacific Forum. Perhaps it need not be as comprehensive or as close as the European Union but I would start with the objects and the operations of the EU in mind. I can't imagine a greater, real contribution to the strong and peaceful development and viability of the region than an initiative of this nature. It would not only flow into commercial arrangements, but into labour markets, and thus into social and cultural areas. I know that this suggestion is a major step forward from the notion of guest workers, but as I look forward I couldn't see opportunities for the Pacific Islands to withstand challenges and to flourish. I think for them in an economic sense to simply stagnate is to invite a plethora of vexing social and cultural issues which might come home to roost with future Australian generations. If we do embark on something positive, significant and transformational with our friends in our closer neighbourhood, then we really will have paid it forward. As a final note on security, even though in our generation we are asked by governments of either stripe to accept monumental bills for defence modernisation, basically as an act of faith, while always pressing for justification an efficiency to soothe both our conscience and our bank accounts. In the end, we should pay up with a smile. I can imagine nothing worse than a guilty feeling I might have, and you might have, as we slip into our dotage, than the thought that in the future, some young Aussie might be lamenting our penny-pinching as he or she goes down in flames in some antiquated or dud equipment we foisted on them. Ladies and gentlemen, time for me to conclude. Before I do, I would very much like briefly to express my sincere thanks to the ABC at large, but especially to my producer Susan Clark, to my sound engineer Michelle Goldsworthy, and of course to Dr Jane Connors, the head of Radio National. A special thanks goes to one of my sons, Stephen Cosgrove, not only a wonderfully diligent researcher for these lectures, but a great mentor and contributor of thoughts and words. As I indicated at the start, it has been a marvellous experience. Paying it forward. In many ways, that is a succinct expression of the major obligation of our existence doing things now for the protection and upliftment of relatively helpless future generations. They either don't exist or they are presently too young to take actions themselves. Australians don't have this obligation uniquely. Every society on earth shares it equally. But we have opportunities not widely available we not only have an abundance of brilliant people with great energy and inventiveness, we are comparatively rich, and thus we can do what others might only dream. Whether you believe in an afterlife or not, a higher being or not, whether you plan to stand at the pearly gates or to return as a grasshopper, it doesn't matter. At the moment of this lecture, in December 2009, still... At the front door of the new millennium, the future is in our hands. Good luck to us all.
0: A profound belief and trust in the safety and effectiveness of our democratic system is one of the cornerstones of our identity. And this unbreakable strength of the instruments of democracy is the greatest legacy we pass to future Australians. On ABC Radio National, that was General Peter Cosgrove delivering Australia's Future, Paying It Forward, the final lecture in this Boyer series, which he's titled A Very Australian Conversation. And you can, of course, hear this lecture again. You can download it, you can read the transcript, and you can write a comment by going to our web page at abc.net.au slash rn slash Boyer Lectures.